Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Vinganza Media Podcast about everything in print. Stuart in L.A. here with a final book review for 2014, The Prestige by Christopher Priest, a 400-page novel written in 1995. It would be adapted by a Christopher Nolan 11 years later. Those that listen to Sister Podcast Now Playing already know I'm a big fan of Christopher Nolan, the director, and the Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale movie. There were so many distinctive touches about that prestige that reflected earlier Nolan movies like Memento and Batman Begins. I always gave him credit for creating this story. It never occurred to me that the prestige could be based on a novel written by someone else. I had never heard of Christopher Priest before, and up until a few months ago, I had no expectation I was ever going to read The Prestige, which is probably the way Christopher Nolan wanted it, frankly. <laughs> Back in 2006, he apparently used his clout to block a tie-in publication from hitting American bookshelves so people would not have access to the original source material. He wanted to make sure that when people went into the movie theater, they didn't have the big plot twist spoiled. What's funny about reading this novel now, long after those initial two viewings of the film, is how unfamiliar the story looks to me on the page. I mean, we start in present day with a somewhat humorous newspaper reporter dropping into the English countryside to investigate a miracle performed by a fringe Christian cult. Did I pick up the wrong prestige? I mean, does this sound anything like that original film? Well, eventually Christopher Priest does introduce dueling magicians trying to perfect a teleportation trick at the turn of the 20th century, but he's disguised their story in a very broken narrative that makes the book experience feel very different from the Nolan adaptation. The literary prestige I'm going to talk about here today on Books and Nachos is comprised of five segments, and each of which is told by four different characters, all in first-person narration. So you have to trust what they're giving you. Mixing up the perspectives in this way, it creates a lot of mystery because we are having the same events being described by people with different agendas, uh, told in different eras. I mean, their bias, the reliability of memory, all of these play a factor into them being able to tell the story and thus us learning the truth. So the fun of this is really a postmodern game. What really happened and putting all the pieces together is about combining all of these different accounts and trying to see if they all formulate the same picture. The first and last sections of the book are narrated by Andrew Wesley. I guess he's our main character. He is that modern-day newsman I spoke of uh, who comes to Rural Caldwell investigating this rumor that the leader of the rapturous Church of Christ Jesus, he appeared to the bedside of a dying member while simultaneously being in a prison cell in California. Now, anyone that saw the prestige no doubt remembers the big twist involves a magical device. Maybe you remember it's built by Nikola Tesla, and it allowed a man to teleport, to transport himself into a different place. Could this cult leader have stumbled upon that apparatus and be using its secret power to amass a following on two separate continents? Nope. 
<laughs> Total red herring, completely fictitious story made up by Kate Angier, the woman who lives in the mansion next door to the church. She knows Andrew Wesley reports on UFOs and urban myths, and she was just trying to concoct something that would lure him out to her remote family manor, and they could work together on solving a mystery she's been working on most of her life. Kate tells Andrew that they have met before, in childhood, and her recounting of that memory is the third section of The Prestige. By the time we get to part three, we're about 140 pages in, we know that the first narrator was adopted and called Andrew Wesley, but Kate is claiming that he was originally known as Nicholas Borden, a very ill-mannered brat with whom she had the misfortune of having a surprise play date back in 1970. And she remembers while she and her sister tried to entertain the stranger, her parents were arguing with the boy's father in a separate room, trying to come to terms about a long-standing rivalry between the Angier and Borden families. Andrew has no memory of this feud or this visit or even being in this estate before 1995, but he admits there is something about his past that has always been troubling to him, that he has this feeling, a voice in his head, really, that somewhere else in the world he has a twin brother. And even though his adopted parents claim he had no sibling and there's nothing in his birth records to indicate it, he's just sure that somewhere in the world there's another him out there. So now the savvy movie viewer is going to be standing to attention, right? Because, okay, I haven't seen the movie in some time, but I distinctly remember David Bowie designing a teleportation machine and it ends up photocopying Hugh Jackman, right? So that's got to be the mystery at the heart of this, right? I'm jumping ahead thinking I got this figured out in a 100 pages. Andrew must have gotten photocopied and he and Kate are going to find that machine tucked away in the secret triangular room in the back of the house, this place that the heiress has never been allowed to go in. They're going to find it. Maybe they're even going to find his doppelganger. Maybe even Nicholas Borden, the original of himself, is going to be there and they can end this feud together. Well, I'm close, but not quite. Kate and Andrew, yes, they are going to find a biological anomaly living in that secret room. They are going to find the Tesla device that all comes in the fifth final section of the book, really only a few pages at the conclusion. But what they find is not a long-lost twin brother. Before we get there, I think uh, we should bring up the other two sections of the book because they're the real meat of the story. They're what the movie is based on. None of this frame story you're going to find in the film. Book two, sandwiched between Kate and Andrew's accounts, is what purports to be a published book called Secret Methods of Magic. It is written by Andrew's great-grandfather, Alfred Borden, in 1901. It's about 100 pages long. And it's largely an instructional manual for aspiring magicians on how to do tricks. But it is also an autobiography of a very conflicted man. And then after that, the fourth section, after we've had Kate's version of the past, we are going to read the private diary of her great-grandfather, Rupert Angier. And this is the largest section of The Prestige. It's more than 200 pages long. It's where most of the movie really comes from. It starts with Rupert's ninth birthday in 1866, and it runs to the summer of 1904, which is a time shortly before his reported death. Although whether Rupert Angier has ever died will be up for debate all the way to the end. 
Alfred Borden and Rupert Angier share the fact that they were both successful stage magicians in the late 19th century, but they came from very different backgrounds. Borden was a poor kid. He picked up car tricks and sleight of hand maneuvers from con men and pickpockets and whoever he came across doing menial child labor. Getting good at his craft was his ticket out of poverty. Rupert Angier comes from money. I mean, you'd already have guessed that because his great-granddaughter lives in this fantastic house that has been in the family for centuries. But for a long period of time, Angier was cut off from his inheritance by his older brother, and so he and his wife had to pay the bills some other way. They decided to pretend to be mentalists, occultists. They would go door-to-door holding fake seances, pretending to receive messages from the dead, which were actually just optical illusions they would rig, and they would have these grateful, grieving people be, uh, you know, give them money. So grateful to hear messages from their lost ones that they would just lavish these two with funds and this was their career. And that's where the rift between Angier and Borden really began, I think. It was Angier picked Borden's aunt as a target. And when Borden found out that she had given Angier money, he was morally offended that these con artists would prey upon people in a weak emotional state. He took it upon himself to, to ruin the racket to expose his methods. He barged into a different seance. He pushes Julia to the ground. And this causes the woman to miscarry Rupert's first child. Physically, Julia is going to recover in a few weeks. And she'll eventually bear him more children. But mentally, she's never the same again. She grows distance from her husband. And she never performs seances again. She doesn't want to be on the grift. And so it forces Rupert to get a new assistant and to book more traditional magic acts on the stage. He becomes a stage magician. Is this all Alfred Borden's fault? Well, Angier seems to think so. When you read his diary, uh, he's also going to blame him for Angier having an affair with his assistant, (laughs) which is kind of funny. But uh, Julia ends up finding out that he's cheating on her with the assistant and, and leaves with the kids. And I think it's just easier to... Blame other people for your fate than to ever take any personal responsibility for your misfortune. Obviously, Borden didn't make Angier have an affair with the assistant, but at any rate, Angier becomes obsessed with destroying Borden's life. You know, we're going to hear different accounts of these events, both in Borden's Magic Tell-All book, Section 2, and Angier's Private Diary, Part 4. It is for the reader to determine who is more at fault. But for the next two decades, these men are out for blood, trying to destroy each other, interrupting each other's magic shows, heckling, pointing out how the tricks are done, how Borden even locks Angier in his water tank so that he can't escape in his normal way. He almost drowns on stage. But the question for me remains, after finishing The Prestige, does Borden actually kill Angier, because what we find out is that Angier's final stage performance, Borden sneaks backstage and unplugs this hulking machine that's coursing with electricity that he's using to do this teleportation trick. And Borden's furious because he was doing a teleportation trick long before Angier was, and he was doing it lo-fi. There was no electrical equipment involved. So he's very curious to know what the hell this stuff is, and he goes backstage and disrupts it mid-trick, and all of a sudden he hears a scream from the stage, his rival cancels the show, appears to him feebly backstage, his hair has gone white, and a few months later, he's died of a mysterious ailment. 
And so now I'm kind of getting to that big twist that Christopher Nolan didn't want movie audiences to know. And keeping in mind that you listeners may not have seen the movie or read the story yet, I'm going to be a little bit cagey about giving away any more of the details of the story. But I am going to go to the major spoiler here. So if you don't want to know any more, if you're intrigued by this, I would say go ahead, turn this podcast off, go read the book, definitely go see the film. You're still here? All right. I've already let it slip that Angier worked with reclusive scientist Nikola Tesla to invent an electrical machine for a trick. It is known to the paying public as In a Flash because it proclaims to teleport that occupant who steps inside a cabinet across the stage with lightning speed. But unlike Borden's teleportation man trick, there's no deception. There's no illusion to it. What the audience sees is really what happens. Christopher Priest wants us to swallow that a visionary like Tesla in 1900 figured out a way of breaking down molecules and shooting them invisibly across a great distance to reassemble like magic. And it's a big point of contention for viewers of the movie. I imagine it's going to be for readers of the book. I am able to go with this twist. I'll leave it at that. Let me just read you a few passages from Angier's diary in which he relays the experience of stepping into this magic cabinet. This is from February 14th, 1901. Tesla warned me that there would be after-effects, and these are indeed profound. It is no trivial matter to use the apparatus. Each time I pass through it, I suffer. In the first place, there is the physical pain. My body is wrenched apart, dissembled. Every tiny particle of me is thrown asunder, becoming one with the ether. In a fraction of a second, a fraction so small that it cannot be measured, my body is converted into electrical waves. It is radiated through space. It is reassembled at its designated target. Slam! I am broken apart. Slam! I am together again. It is a violent shock that explodes in every part of me, in every direction. And then skipping ahead a little, I must, by careful art, make my miracle less miraculous. I must emerge from the elemental transmitter as if I have not been slammed apart and slammed together again. And so I have been trying to learn how to prepare for and brace myself against the pain, how to react to it without keeling over, how to step forward with my arms raised and with a flashing smile to bow and acknowledge applause, to mystify sufficiently, but not too much. In my estimation, what Angier's talking about here is he has to make a show of his death and smile while doing it. Because one of the things we're going to learn here is that there's, yeah, a real consequence for stepping into this chamber. It isn't a teleportation device strictly. Something gets left behind in the chamber when you teleport your distance. And that residue is called a prestige. What it is? Well, the movie makes it pretty clear early on, I think. But the book, because we're only knowing what is being said by Angier in his diary, he's leaving a lot out. He keeps talking about needing to get rid of these prestiges and that he has this assistant opening up a vault and bringing all these unwanted prestiges into the vault. But I don't know that readers would have a really good idea about even what he's talking about. You, Your eyes might even glide over the word prestige. It's such a nice word. It has such nice connotations. You might have no idea that he's talking about a dead body, a grinning carcass that he then stuffs into the family mausoleum. 
as I stated before, it's more of a photocopy. It's less teleportation. The residue is your former self. Uh, what comes out at the other end is what keeps writing in the journal, but yes, it's not pretty. Although Angier kind of grows to like it. A few months later, in July, he's writing about there being no after effects. I'll read you a little bit more, you know. Nor are the mental after effects, which so scourged me at the outset, a problem anymore. I suffer no agonies of depression or self-doubt. To the contrary, and I confide this to no one and record it in no other document than in this secret and lockable diary. The wrenching apart of my body has become a pleasure to which I am almost addicted. At first I was disheartened by the imaginings of death, of living in an afterlife, but now I nightly experience my transmission as a rebirth, a renewal of self. In the early days I was concerned by the many times I should have to perform the trick to keep in practice, but now as soon as I have completed one performance, I begin to crave the next. And indeed, I believe that Angier gets more wealth and success out of his teleportation trick than the original Alfred Borden ever did with his fake version. So, I suppose you can say he gets the last laugh, particularly when we get back to the 20th century in the frame story, and we find out that there's poetic justice for causing his wife Julia to miscarry their first child. He is going to claim the life of Alfred's descendant in 1970 and by which I'm speaking of this Angier family estate meeting that Kate is recalling in part three. The reason why Andrew Wesley cannot recollect being there is that he is the byproduct of the death of little Nicholas Borden. They aren't twin brothers. Nicholas is Andrew's prestige. He is the residue. He was shoved into that very same Tesla apparatus that was unplugged and maybe claimed the life of Rupert Angier, and to prove that this machine did what it said in 1970, the Angier family members, yes, essentially killed this little boy to prove that it could transform him and teleport him across the room. And most of these reveals are really coming in at the very end, the concluding fifth section, again narrated by Andrew Wesley. He is breaking into the family tune. He finds the corpse of his former self. And in doing so, those voices that he's heard from this twin brother he imagines he has, they immediately stop. But that is not all he's going to find in that tomb. The book is going to add many more layers of dissociation and identity splintering. And I'm not going to spoil Priest's trick. But I will say this. I'm not sure I like it either. I want to evaluate the prestige on its own merits. I want to look at as a novel and, and not compare it to the movie, but it's hard not to. When you watch the story the way that Christopher Nolan had assembled it, you are gripped by the suspense of a thriller and by its obsessive drama, all of its notions about an age moving from superstition into an age of electricity and industrialization. It's very visceral and visual and powerful. And here on the page, I'm just working really, really hard to figure out what's going on. I'm interpreting transcripts. I'm trying to read between the lines of what people have said to get at a truth. And while that can be fun, it also leaves a whole lot more uncertainty to what I've experienced. It might help if I knew the author's other work better. If, if I had a, a association with other things that he's done, I could see that this was in keeping. I, w I would know what kind of story I had gotten myself into. 
but I had never heard of a single other book written by Christopher Priest when I scanned his bibliography. And despite the fact that Wikipedia tells me he's won many prestigious awards and has this devote following, I scanned through the write-ups. I don't know anything that this man has done. It, they sound interesting. I mean, it sounds to me like he is a pioneer of steampunk and that he loves H.G. Wells' notions of taking a hot air balloon to space, that, that he is constantly putting the improbable in the historically documented. And I did see that this book, The Prestige, helped land Priest a gig writing the novelization of Existence, a film by David Cronenberg I really admire. And I can now see... A lot of Cronenberg in this book, just by that association, knowing that he wrote Ex Existenz's story on the page, which was about people losing their identity playing virtual reality games and having to keep playing roles inside roles. Well, that's also what's going on here when they really get into this teleportation stuff. Angier goes much further with it. He teleports himself inside his own dead body. He teleports himself inside strange areas. He finds new ways to keep going long after his original body has died. And I think that Priest has a knack for writing the unreliable narrator. And I think it's the strength of this book that you are asking these why questions. I actually think rereading it might be more rewarding than reading it the first time. I found myself going back and reading large sections of it weeks after my first going through. And there's something about it that just draws you in. It doesn't come together on the page, but it remains entrancing. So with that said, I don't know that I would see the potential for a good movie in The Prestige. I'm glad Christopher Nolan did, but to me, it largely feels like a postmodern stunt. It left me a little confused. It definitely left me cold. But if you want to know more of my thoughts on the movie, I invite you to go over to NowPlayingPodcast.com. You can hear my thoughts along with those of fellow podcaster Arnie and Jacob. We're over there. The show is available. In summation of this book, I think fans of the movie should expect a much more muted thriller and a much crazier science fiction story if they're going to go to this source material. Priest has a strong voice, or voices, I should say. And I do believe that I want to read another one of his works at some point. And if anyone's got a suggestion about where to go to next, I'd love to hear it. Uh, please go to our forums. I always enjoy chatting with fellow readers about what I'm covering here at Books and Nachos. But for now, I think I'm done. I'm going to turn Books and Nachos back to Arnie and Stephen King for the remainder of 2014. He has been reading The Stand all year long and is ready to unleash a podcast in the next two weeks covering Stephen King's epic post-apocalyptic story, The Stand, as well as more reviews of Stephen King books in the coming months. So I'm sure I'll be back here talking books with you someday soon. Thanks for listening. Keep reading. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.